in light of current events and being exposed to the explanation and justification of both sides of, of any conflict, the expression an eye for an eye has been offered as validation. And without stating a position of any kind on, on the or any specific conflict, I wanted to look deeper in the origin and meaning of this expression and hold it up to God's word to measure whether this phrase is being used correctly to administer justice or, or maybe even validate revenge. So I've titled this morning's message, Only an Eye, which might give you a, a little clue. Now the phrase, an eye for an eye, we all heard it. It's a well-known idiom that has its roots in various ancient legal and religious texts. If you can go back to as far as ancient Mesopotamia, the principle of an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth is found in the code of Hammurabi. And it's one of the earliest and most complete written legal systems from ancient Mesopotamia. And they, they date this back to around 1750 BCE. In this context, the phrase is meant to establish a sense of proportionality in punishments. It indicates the punishment for a crime should be equivalent to the harm that is caused. Ancient Hebrew law is, is recorded in the Old Testament. The concept of an eye for an eye is also found in the Hebrew Bible, and it's specific to the Old Testament. In the book of Exodus, specifically Exodus 21, 23 through 25, the principle is stated this way. It says, but if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. And in this context, it was a, a guideline for judges to ensure that punishments were proportionate to the defenses committed. Because there were times in history where if someone wronged you, you would wrong them back and worse. And, and you might even kill another person's family because they did something to you. So this was a way of kind of corralling justice in a way that is fair and equitable. The problem happens when we as humans try to be the judges that offer the ruling. But the interpretations of an eye for an eye become, have become more nuanced over the time. It, it was understood not as literal commandment, right? We don't, we don't do that literally more um, for retaliation, but it's a way to, to compensate victims. This interpretation emphasizes the importance of monetary or compensatory restitution rather than literal physical retaliation, and a lot of our justice system, especially in civil law, is based on this. The, what you're entitled to is justice for what you've gone through. And it's influenced our Western legal systems. The, the concept of proportional punishment has had a significant influence on us, including Roman law and European legal traditions all the way today. And in many Western legal systems, the idea remains a fundamental principle although the little interpretation of an eye for an eye has been largely abandoned in favor of more humane, right, and nuanced approaches to justice. So as you can see, especially from the original interpretations and applications, an eye for an eye is a limitation to ensure that justice is not disproportionate. Its original intention, as found in the Bible, was to establish a principal punishment. Instead of allowing excessive retaliation, this concept aimed to ensure that the punishment for crime matched the severity of the offense and overly harsh penalties. Rather than allowing unlimited vengeance, it restricted the punishment to being equivalent to the harm caused. And so it was a step towards ensuring a more measured and fair system of justice, which is what we should desire. Discouraging retaliation that could lead to endless cycles of violence and vendettas. And the Christian perspective for this eye for an eye, we recognize that there is a stark difference between justice and revenge. 
We live in a world of ever-present conflict and hostility. So understanding concepts like this from a biblical perspective is crucial. As followers of Christ, we are called to exemplify his teachings, which are love and forgiveness and righteousness. So I want to open our Bibles and and dig into the scriptures and, and seek wisdom and guidance to help us comprehend the true nature of justice. The Bible is the foundation of justice. In the Bible, justice is fundamentally rooted in the nature of God. We know that as one of God's core characters. Deuteronomy 23.4 declares, He is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. Now we love that when we want him to judge us, but sometimes when we want him to judge other people, we're like, God, why are they getting away with that? But God is fair and equal in, in how he interprets right and wrong, good and evil. God's justice is impartial, it's fair and, and righteous. And the Bible emphasizes the importance of human beings limiting God's justice in their lives or imitating God's justice in our lives. Old Testament examples of justice include Micah's prophetic call for justice. And this is what Al read this morning from the scripture member. It says, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. Micah succinctly outlines God's expectations of justice, mercy, and humility. And these these virtues form the core of righteous living in God's eyes, right? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. Another First Testament example can be found in the story of King Solomon's wisdom if you were to read 1 Kings 3, verses 16 through 28, um, it's the story of the two women, and one of them had lost a child, and they, had, they both had women of, or babies of the same age, and one had um, supposedly rolled over and, and killed one of the babies in her sleep, but the other one snuck in and switched the babies. Now, I remember learning this in Sunday school, but when I reread it again, I didn't realize they were prostitutes. Maybe they cleaned that up for my Sunday school, but so I wouldn't have to say, what's a prostitute? Um, but these, they had swapped the babies, and, and the woman woke up with a dead baby, and she immediately knew, that is, not, that is not my child. And so she went to the king, who was the judge, and said, you know, this woman stole my baby. And the other one said, no, no, she's lying. She, she killed her own baby, and, and that's it. And I'm paraphrasing greatly. Um, and the king, you know, needed to figure out what to do. And this was really uh, interesting. He said, Simple, we'll just, if you can't agree, we're just gonna take a sword, we're gonna cut the baby in half, each of you gets a half. Well, you know, you know what that would mean. And, and one of the mothers who was so angry, she said, yeah, do it. That's right, and the other one said, no, it's more important that this child lives than lives with me. Again, paraphrasing greatly. And this revealed the, you know, who the real mother was. And, and this was an example of the kind of, of justice and wisdom. King Solomon's wisdom in resolving this dispute between the two women demonstrates God's gifts of discernment, right? How, how do I know what is good and truth and right? And this is so fundamental in just decision-making. What is fair? What is right? New Testament teachings on justice include the parable of the Good Samaritan. We know that. It's found in Luke 10, 25 to 37. And Jesus illustrates the essence of true justice through the compassionate actions of the Samaritan, emphasizing that justice is not merely a legal concept, right? We must legally be fair, but a deeply moral and compassionate act that we should be fair and just in everything we do. Again, not these, just these global 
uh, conflicts, but in every decision in our life, what is good and fair, equitable and righteous? Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew 5, I'm gonna read from verses 38 through 42. He says, you have heard that it was said. Now, I love that he does this, and I point it out every time I read from the Sermon on the Mount. He always takes the Old Testament law, and then he explains it better. Right? He says, you have heard it, it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. We know that's found in Deuteronomy. He says, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek also. That's where that expression comes from, turn the other cheek. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone enforces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. In this teaching, Jesus challenges the conventional understanding of justice by teaching his followers to turn the other cheek and to go the extra mile. These expressions we hear often, now you know where they come from. To promote forgiveness and reconciliation over retaliation. And I want to say that again. Forgiveness and reconciliation over retaliation. We, we can do forgiveness sometimes, right? We can forgive. Sometimes we can go as far as forgetting. But reconciliation is that last step of, of healing that we as humans have really failed to embrace. Forgiveness and reconciliation over retaliation. Retaliation and revenge have a destructive nature. They're contrary to justice. They are driven by anger and resentment and a desire for personal retribution, right? I will teach them this is not fair. Revenge seeks to inflict harm, pain, or suffering on others, often in response to a perceived wrong. Now, we don't have to go to global conflicts. Let's just talk about driving on the road, right? The Bible unequivocally condemns the pursuit of revenge and calls for different paths for believers. The Bible specifically warns against us. Romans 12, 19. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. It's God's divine prerogative to handle matters of judgment. I could not handle it as fairly, completely, as justly as God will. Sometimes it's hard to let go of that, that control when you think you've been wronged in some way. But God does a better and more fair job than, than we could possibly do. Proverbs 24, 29 says, Do not say, I'll do to them as they've done to me. I'll pay them back for what they did. It cautions against this destructive cycle of revenge because if that person turns and says, I'll just do to them what they did to me, and you've got the cycle, and that's how things escalate. And Jesus counters this human tendency of ours by teaching us the responsibility and power of forgiveness. You know the Lord's Prayer we recite as a congregation every week. With intention, Jesus included this phrase, forgive us our debts or forgive us our trespasses as we also have forgiven our debtors or those who have trespassed against us. In doing so, he highlights the importance of forgiveness in our relationship with God and others. And think about the word as. Forgive as. Forgive likewise. I mean, God's forgiven us. We should forgive that same way. Or forgive as, meaning it concurrently. Forgive as we're doing these other things, right? That this is a, a constant thing we're needing to do is forgive others for their trespasses or perceived trespasses. Another of Jesus' many lessons on forgiveness can be found in the parable of the unforgiving servant. If you want to read it, it's in Matthew 18, 21 through 35. And this is the one where he says, how many times should I forgive this person? And, and seven times, there's a question. He says, 
Some versions say 77. Some versions say 70 times 7, okay? This is not a literal number. This is one of those magic biblical numbers, 7. That means complete, right? And so if he's saying 7 times 7 or 70 times 7 or 77, he's saying endless, right? As many times as it takes, that's what you're going to do. And I'll tell you what, I'm glad that God looks at it this way because how many times do I need to be forgiven? It's not 1, 2, or 7. It's probably not even 77. I need this. This parable illustrates the immeasurable grace of God and the necessity for believers to extend this forgiveness to others, no matter how significant the offense, including forgiveness for ourselves. And like all spirit-driven acts, there's a transformative power in justice and forgiveness. It restores broken relationships. Again, it said Matthew 5, 23 through 24, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. And this emphasizes the importance of reconciliation. Even before offering sacrifices to God, restorative justice seeks to mend relationships and heal wounds, focusing on redemption and transformation. Remember, God wants your heart even more than he wants your worship. And he wants it way more than he wants your stuff. The example of Joseph found in Genesis 45, 1 through 15, again, it teaches that it isn't just limited to small offenses. Joseph, remember, was was sold into slavery by his brothers who were intended to kill him. And his forgiveness and reconciliation with his brothers served as a powerful testament to the power of transformation. It illustrated how God can turn even the darkest situations, the unforgivable, into opportunities for healing and restoration, in this case, the saving of a great many people. And Jesus was teaching this to us because it's both the will and the way of God the Father. We should be embracing God's justice and forgiveness and then both modeling and sharing it with others. Isaiah 30, 18 says, Let, Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Right? He desires to forgive you and show you mercy. He will rise up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. He desires to extend justice and mercy to his people. That doesn't mean he can, he can accept the things that we've done that are sinful. But he can choose to forgive them. We need this justice. And of course, the greatest expression of love and forgiveness can be found in the cross of Jesus Christ, our Savior, from 1 Peter 2 through 24, or 2, 24, it says, He himself bore our sins and his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. The ultimate act of justice and mercy occurred on the cross where Jesus, the innocent lamb of God, bore the sins of humanity, exemplifying God's justice and love in its purest form. What was proportional for the amount of sin that the world had done, that we have in our lives? I mean, we know what it means. It's spiritual death. The proportional response was death on a cross. But that price has been paid. There's no longer a cycle. There's no vengeful God, okay? It has been paid. And I want to look at a few other aspects that, we meet, that have been mentioned lately, questions that I've, I've been asked. And one is this concept of preemptive justice. <laughs> um, and then the one where justice might become revenge. And the concept of preemptive justice, which involves taking action against a perceived threat 
or harm before it occurs. It's not explicitly mentioned in the Bible, not that I could find. However, the Bible does provide principles that promote discernment, self-defense in the face of threat, and trust in God's guidance and commitment to peaceful resolution. Right? The Bible encourages righteous judgment and discernment in dealing with situations and people. In fact, there's a, a story in, in John 7 through 724. It says, stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. And it suggests the importance of taking careful consideration and judgment about threats and situations and the intentions of others. I've shared the psychology of, of relationships is we judge ourselves by our intent. We judge others by their thoughts and actions, right? That's why we can say, well, you hurt my feelings. But when we hurt someone else's feelings, well, I didn't mean to, right? We judge other people by what they do and we, we defend ourselves with our intention. God says you need to be really thoughtful with your discernment on judgment. And the Bible also acknowledges self-defense, but it also tells us to trust in him. It says, trust the Lord with all your heart and lean on, on your own understanding. All your ways submit to him. He will make your path straight. If we rely on him and his wisdom and his good judgment, then beyond the things that we actually can control, we have to turn it over. And that's why we pray so fervently for so many of the things going on in the world right now. And the Bible promotes peaceful resolution whenever possible. Romans 12, 18, the apostle Paul says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So why are we talking about this kind of stuff on a, and on a Sunday when there's things going on in Washington, D.C. and around the nation and around the world when we are a tiny congregation in the middle of Morgan County, Missouri? Because as far as it is up to us, there are things we can do. We can breathe fresh life and, and forgiveness into the people whose lives we touch. We can pray like crazy for those other things. It does make a difference. God promises that. We as Christians may draw upon Bible principles like these to engage in ethical discussions regarding preemptive actions in various contexts, but we always need to consider the specific circumstances and strive to uphold principles of justice, mercy, and love in all situations. And then someone was asked, what about justice? When does justice come, become revenge? I think there's a series of accountability questions we have to answer for ourselves when we look at anything. And I, I've shared before that there's a couple guys I meet with every Tuesday morning or whenever we can. And, and we started by using these 10 accountability questions. Um, and if you're curious, I can, I can send them to you. And, um, and some of them are pretty easy and some are pretty deep. And it's amazing what one week we have to deal with. Uh, the one that's really troubled uh, my friend Tim and I lately is, have you let anything rob you of your joy? That is such a simple question. I love the wording of that, right? It's a question that puts the accountability on, on me. Have I let anything rob me of my joy, a person, a situation, a, a mindset, lack of sleep, whatever it may be? But so I put some of these accountability questions when we look at what we're trying to do when we're trying to reconcile or seek justice. The first is intent and motivation. When you are seeking justice, it's guided by a desire for fairness and restored a balance between the wrongdoer and the, the thing that was wrong, right? And, and the law is built on justice, of, of fairness. Revenge, on the other hand, is driven by anger. My motivation is I'm frustrated, I'm hurt, I'm resentful. I want to be vindicated. When we look at proportionality, just punishments or just responses are proportionate to the crime. So, you know, is this 
a, an appropriate response, even in my mind. Revenge often goes in proportions. Like, I will teach them. I will teach that situation a lesson. There's got to be consequences. Fair process. Justice is, is a fair trial, a due process, right, in the legal system. For us, did I think through all of the things that are going on and anticipate another person's intent, not just what they did? Where revenge is, is impulsive and arbitrary, the knee-jerk reaction to whatever happened. Justice has long-term consequences that, that seek to reconcile and rehabilitate. Where revenge, it just starts this perpetual cycle of whatever that may be, of negativity, of, of resentment. Justice becomes revenge when the pursuit of fairness and accountability becomes a desire for disproportionate retaliation. It becomes likely when we appoint ourselves judges and administrators of judges of justice. And this is not our role because we lack objectivity and wisdom, impartiality, quite honestly, the good character that it takes to do so. There was an editorial article that I read just yesterday whose title caught my eye, and it said, the single greatest threat to America is hiding in plain sight. I knew it was probably clickbait, but I was going to see what it was. You know, it could have been... You know, mold in your walls. I, I don't know what it was going to be, but I was curious what this said. And, and it said, I'm just going to share with you the first paragraph. It's from uh, editor Jonathan Turley. He writes, a startling poll was released last week showing that the majority of voters not only view the opposing party as a threat to the nation, but justify violence to combat their agenda. The poll captures a crisis of faith that it says that he's been writing about for over a decade as an academic and a commentator. Many now question democracy as a sustainable system of government. That scares me. He suggests that it re represents the single greatest threat to this nation is this. A citizenry, a, us, that has lost faith, not just with our system of government, but with each other. That we can't trust another person or their response or their beliefs or the, how they're going to handle them. That terrifies me. And that's why I wanted to read this message today, which I hope is something that doesn't, we, none of us struggle with. But the truth is when we feel wronged, we want to feel vindicated for it. And we gotta remember that there's some checks in there that says we have to show grace and mercy in how we respond. Okay, bless you. A, a citizenry that has lost faith, not just with our system of government, but with each other. We've got to do better. As I conclude this morning's message, I want to remind us that all, myself included, we are called to embody God's justice, which is rooted in fairness, righteousness, and mercy. That we must reject the destructive path of, of revenge and vindication, of teaching lessons, instead embracing the transforming power of forgiveness and reconciliation. Our testimony in showing that kind of grace and acceptance is powerful. And by following the teachings of Christ and imitating his example, we can contribute to a more just and compassionate world, starting right here where we are, reflecting God's divine nature to those around us. So let's pray for the strength and wisdom to choose the path of justice, forgiveness, and that also important final step of reconciliation in our lives, that we may truly live out the message of Christ and be agents of his God's transformative power in this broken world. Let's pray. Let's make that our prayer. Heavenly Father, we don't have to go far in the news to hear about the things in this world. Just 
broken friendships, broken relationships from, from personal all the way up to global. Lord, we know that you call for unity and, and acceptance, but you also tell us to stand firmly in the ideals that you have placed in our heart that the commandments and laws that you have not only inscribed in stone, but inscribed in our hearts. So Lord, will you tell us that we need to stand up and insist and demand that things are done well, right, and fairly to fight evil, to, to help the oppressed. But Lord, sometimes we take that disproportionately and we go too far or we inject our own human subjective discernment in what is good, right, and fair. Lord, you've given us a firm basis for how you want your children, who all of us, to live our lives. Lord, help us to pull some of the emotions out of this and to, with an equal amount of excitement and, and fervor and, and whatever, just, just try to make this world a better place, starting right here in the seat we're in now. If it's a, an issue with the person next to us, if it's the person in the room on the road later today, whatever it may be, fair justice. Lord, we trust you to handle the injustices in the world, but we know that we have a responsible part of that as well. Lord, help us to imitate your son, Jesus Christ, and all the lessons he not only taught, but exemplified. Help us to be a part of the solution to reconcile and rehabilitate the community to one that is united in its love for you, its care for the environment, its care for those in need, and most of all, Lord, just to value all of creation. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for your son. We are sorry for the just judgment that you had to do that put him on that cross, but we thank you that it was done so that we could have this conversation with you, that we can have this hope for a future. Lord, help us to do our part in making it a good one. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.